0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Reality 2.0. I am Catherine Druckman. Doc Searles is joining me as always. I know I say that every time, there but I it's true. I, except yeah. every once in a while you actually travel and, and have a life and stuff and, and we have to pinch <laughs> it with Sean or something. So it is relevant. Um, yeah. So here we are. And we're, we're back with Dave Hughesby, who has been <laughs> on the podcast many times. And we love having Dave because uh, he always has some really big he ideas.
1: can't help being interesting. It's uh,
0: It's true. Yeah, you just kind of stumble a hazard, into... A, a hazard <laughs> elsewhere, <laughs> but not
1: on this show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we're
0: going to talk about some things and involving identity and commerce and things. Anyway, but we'll get to that in a minute. Before we do that, I wanted to make sure to remind everyone to check out reality2cast.com. That is our website where you can find show notes and... Uh, you can find links sign up for newsletter the newsletter. Yes, you can, I keep wanting exactly. to step up, but i Yeah, well, yeah. But, but the good news is that we don't spam anybody, and when it comes out, it's we promise to make it interesting. So that works. And I, I actually wanted to give an, yet another plug for the podcast that I have launched at Intel called Open at Intel. Please follow that as well, especially if you're interested in security. We're, we're starting, we're kind of ramping up on an interesting security conversation over there. Uh, so yeah, I hope you will join me. But yeah, in the meantime, Dave, tell it tell us what you're working on. I
1: think
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, you're first of all. First of all, I want to say you're just too kind about saying I'm interesting. I, that's not
1: what I get at cocktail parties. But <laughs> you're going um, to the wrong parties. I, you're the right, you're wrong. <laughs> I'll invite you to some. Except Avoid I don't have any. <laughs> I, Well, a, I'm the cocktail I'm, without the party. It's, <clears throat> isn't
2: isn't drinking alone what you're not supposed to do? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well um so thanks for having me on again. I it, it's been my habit to get to something that I think is really interesting, um some turning point in what we're doing at Crypto Technologies um or in our research and development and then I call you guys and say, "Hey, can I come on and talk about it?" and you're always just you're so kind and welcoming to let me in. Um and I think today is not going to be any different. Um if you go back and watch the previous episodes, you can kind of see where we're going. Um, I've kind of kept you abreast of where our research development was going, our product development, everything. And we're right at the point of launching. And we're launching two major products for us anyway. Um, the first one is a very low-level API security system that uses succinct zero-knowledge proofs. Um, it's entirely open source, but we automate like sort of the management of it um, from the server standpoint, because, you know, <clears throat> managing who can access your API and stuff like that is, is not easy. And there's lots of tools for that, but we built one that uh, uses our, this new protocol called Oberon that was developed by, um, well, a friend of the show. I think you guys probably know Mike Lotter, um from... IIW. He used to work at Evernim and is... um,
0: Oh, yes. Evernim. I know
2: Evernim. Yeah. And then he was the security maven over at um, Sovereign Foundation when I was the security maven at Hyperledger. So he and I were involved with the Hyperledger URSA and we've been friends for years now. And he's just wrapping up his PhD in cryptography. And this was part of his his thesis. And uh, the cool thing is with this product is that something like 97 percent of all apis on the internet are still secured with usernames and passwords or uh, some big random number that you put in the url and it's transmitted all this stuff is transmitted with every api access and the result is we're seeing all these huge security breaches on apis and to be honest the way the internet works now is apis talking to apis almost entirely now and so our first one is this zero knowledge proof um api security system that allows you to well it has a lot of really interesting security properties that don't exist in the market right now like the endpoints for a, for an api that have to verify the the zero knowledge proof that you are allowed to access this they only possess things like public keys so the the server that is most exposed to the internet doesn't have any data on it that if it's ever taking over could be used to misissue access tokens you can't change the access um so there's defense in depth it uses a blinded issuance protocol so that like i generate a big random number on my side and then i go through a protocol with the server that allows the server to calculate a digital signature over it without ever seeing the the big random number that i generated the, so now i possess a valid token that's signed by the server i can prove that it's properly signed by the server and i never have to transmit my credentials other than this zero knowledge proof that it's been properly signed by the server and um the cool thing here is like the server can't ever impersonate me as a client um i never transmit my credentials all kinds of stuff so there's we're eliminating whole classes of attacks against apis with this one and um we it's already being used in production um we have uh, I think. I think uh, Trinsic's already got it available for their self-sovereign identity wallet product. Um, they're using Oberon for access, and um, we're seeing traction there because it's easy to deploy. It's down to like just a couple lines of code, and it it's really easy to do secure onboarding and enrollment and supports revocation, which was a lot of our research for the last few years. So anyway, there's that, but that's not what I want to talk about.
0: Oh, <laughs> but, okay. Yeah,
2: The other thing that I want to talk about. Plot twist. Yes, (laughs) which is built on top of Oberon, actually. Um, And this, I teased Doc with this, I think, um, saying that this is leading ever closer to intent casting and user-centric transactions online. So here's, let me give you the high level of sort of the architecture. Um, We have an app that's doing identity proofing. very deep identity proofing. So video, you know, it's, we're trying to make it the the gold standard for identity proofing on the internet and identity proofing is when you interact with a system, you know, that they, they say, take a picture of your ID front and back, you know, do a selfie, making a hand gesture, maybe a live call. They're just trying to make sure you're a human being and that your official name and address and all that stuff matches up. Okay. Now, <clears throat> the inner the irs tried to do this last year right id.me they oh, said hey you that? have to do all this just to pay your taxes and there was quite a fervor, a fervor about it right everybody got pretty upset and it was shut down i think a couple months well maybe even just a couple weeks after it launched um and rightly so i think because it was a government database of your biometric data um i think everybody in security and privacy knows that we don't want big databases of people's biometric data because you can't rotate it like you can rotate cryptography keys however and this is the dilemma of systems designers any kind of system that has authentication that requires uh humanness right some kind of identity as part of the authentication and it's it's for a human you have to have some biometric binding to that authentication because if there's no fingerprint requirement or a facial recognition scan requirement, then there's nothing that keeps me from handing my phone to you, Catherine, and you being me, right? So how do you resolve this conflict where we have to be able to have biometric authentication, but you don't want to build central databases of people's biometric data? Well, one of the things we invented was client-side only biometric data that's built into the protocols, um, using the cryptography. So, What we've built is an app that does deep identity proofing. And that data is stored on your device. And actually we're looking into setting up, and this isn't one of our ideas, but this setting up a data fiduciary. This is an idea that came out of IIW a few years ago. And um, it's the idea that a business could have your personal information and they are legally and morally bound to represent you as the individual. So they it's like your digital twin, but it's in a lockbox, right? And that company, or the, wherever that data is stored, only acts on your consent, on your, like, I want this data to be used here and on my consent. So what we've built is this app that does the identity proofing, then the ability to store that in a data fiduciary relationship. And we have relationships with companies that are in the business of knowing what is and is not true about you. So you, these are familiar to most of us, right? Companies like credit rating agencies, companies like, uh, know your customer vendors, things like that. These are companies that are in the business of knowing what is and isn't true about you. The thing that a lot of them don't do very well is identity proofing when they match you up to the, the data they have. I think credit rating agencies get a lot of their data from spending records and stuff from the credit card companies and from cell phone companies and payments processors. And so if you went to one of them, they would have to identity proof you before they gave you access to any data they had on you because they'd have to match you up with the record that they have. So there's an opportunity here. You could set up a company, and this is what we're doing, that identity proofs individuals one last time essentially. The data is stored in a data fiduciary that represents the individual. Then the individual through like an app like interface says, I consent to using my verified information to establish a relationship with one of these backend data sources that knows truthy data about me. Why would they want to do that? Well, because the other part of our platform, the other stuff that we've invented is doing transactions entirely in zero knowledge. The problem is, is that zero zero knowledge proofs are just self attestations, meaning nobody trusts them. Unless you can prove that the data that they're generated from is authentic data and exists and hasn't been revoked. And it comes from an organization that people trust or that the relying parties trust. So think about it like this. Banks, and businesses trust some organizations to know what's true about your credit worthiness, right? right. Or they trust uh, companies like clear to know that who you are or that you can travel, you know, today or whatever. So there's lots of companies that know truthy things about us. Mm-hmm.
1: And what we've built
2: is the ability to leave that data in place. We have a data fiduciary that represents you and is operates entirely under your control and your consent. It allows you to connect to these, your identity, your verified identity to these, like, you know, your truthy data about you, your, sorry, your identity proofed data to these companies to match it up to the records about you and then transact using zero knowledge proofs based off of the data inside those organizations and what it looks like from the outside. And, and this is where I get to that point. That, ah, this this that, was
0: going to be my question. What does this look
2: like? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so where, where I'm getting to is, you know, I started this off by saying privacy and identity are only byproducts of a system. They are not the product. And so we designed a system in which functions like you have a digital identity. It functions almost exactly like you have a wallet on your phone and you've got a digital credential on your phone and all that stuff. None of that works because of a bunch of problems we were talking about just earlier. And I could go into that later. But... Um, it works like that, except your data never leaves the organizations that have the data about you. The only things that leave are zero knowledge proofs and that only happens under your consent, under your control. And so if you have a relying party, say like a social media platform, let's talk about Twitter, you know, uh, Elon Musk last May tweeted out that authentication was important. But so is anonymity, a balance must be struck. I think it's almost exactly the language he used. So, and that was in a broader context, a broader conversation that they need to know that you're human, but they don't need to know who you are to participate on Twitter. Right. What that means to me is that they have a policy. Twitter has a policy. To access the Twitter platform, you have to prove that you are human You have to prove that you are a unique human and you have control over an an account on Twitter, um, but you don't need to share any of the information about who you are. Now, there's one little caveat here. We do live in a society and we do have laws. And so that would, what I just described would give you anonymous access to Twitter because I could be identity proofed With the data fiduciary i could then give consent to that data fiduciary to connect to a kyc vendor and then i could give consent to use zero knowledge proofs from the kyc vendor to prove to twitter that i am a human being and that therefore i should be allowed to have an account and then once i establish an account i can prove that i control this account so at that point twitter doesn't actually know anything about me other than the fact that i'm human so i could be you know, uh, I could be Dadbot one six two four, right? <laughs> I could make up whatever name I wanted. I don't actually have to to tell them who I really am um, in real life. And and this is one of those principles of user sovereignty that I wrote about three years ago, which is your your pr- absolute privacy by default. I get to choose when I want to reduce my privacy, but I start completely private, anonymous. The problem is we live in society. So if I'm on Twitter anonymously and I go and I make, you know, threats or I make something that violates the law, right? Law enforcement needs to happen. So what we also provide is verifiably encrypted de-anonymization data. Now, Twitter wouldn't be able to decrypt it, but they could verify who can decrypt it. And in this case, it would be the KYC vendor or maybe even the data fiduciary, but it's probably the KYC vendor. So then if there is a judge that issues a warrant, hey, that person made some threat, we need to figure out who it is. Twitter hands over that little piece of data, it gets walked back to the KYC vendor, gets decrypted, and now we know who it is. This is perfect fourth amendment privacy. And I think I've mentioned this in the past in in one of our podcasts, because we do have this compromise in our society. The compromise is, We're private in our persons and papers and our dealings, unless we, there's, you know, enough evidence of reasonable suspicion of a crime, and then a judge can issue a warrant to violate our privacy to figure out, to investigate the crime, right? We have built in, in code, using cryptography, the ability to do these transactions entirely in zero knowledge and to support that compromise. We're anonymous by, by default, but... You know if i break the law i can be de-anonymized at least in that uh, scenario now this extends to every transaction on the internet so let's say i want to go and transact and buy cryptocurrency um the policy to transact in cryptocurrency well it will be very soon um because i think everybody's anticipating regulation actions you know from the financial regulators, the policies will be, you need to prove that you are human, um, that somebody knows who you are, not necessarily the cryptocurrency exchange, um, and that you pass anti-mending laundering checks and uh, you're not on the sanctioned names list and all that stuff. Now, with what we've built, you could consent to connect to a, a, a company that does financial regulation compliance checks, you know, AML checks, CFT checks, sanctioned name checks. And then you could provide zero knowledge proofs to the cryptocurrency exchange that you comply with their policy. So, this is actually a new form of authentication that that basically relying parties say here are our policies. You have to be human, we ha- you have to be known, you have to pass all these things, okay? Those policies can be met with zero-knowledge proofs and authenticity proofs and a cryptographic paper trail of where the data is of where those proofs are or proofs came from. And that can all be done at authentication time, either as an API security authentication or through a web login or anything like that. And the, the last thing I want to point out is that If I use this system, to say, join a credit union or something, and then I use this system to get pre-approved for a loan, that credit union now becomes a data source itself because they can provide zero-knowledge proofs that I have been pre-approved for a loan. And so this facilitates this whole sort of virtuous cycle. Most companies know something about their customers. They may not know everything, but they have a small piece of it. And that can be monetized by generating zero knowledge proofs, not by selling the data, but by providing proof that does this sort of enhanced due diligence at authentication time. And so the last thing I want to point out is this significantly reduces security and we think it meaningfully reduces fraud because even the most state-of-the-art authentication right now relies entirely on the client, the customer, the, the, the individual, the, like whoever is connecting to the server and what they can observe about them, like AI and everything just looks at them. But what we're doing now is getting that plus zero knowledge proofs on data from other organizations that are trusted by the relying party. So this is a what I someone told me the other day, this is a better analog to digital conversion of the way real life authentication works. Did you Which
1: just is, did you I, say
0: this significantly reduces security? I think no, it's
1: Significantly, sorry. You mean that increases <laughs> security. Okay, it it reduces, reduces risk. Increases security. <laughs> I, like, I heard that significantly sure reduces
2: fraud. Meant. I was gonna call yeah, yeah, no, no, no. It, So thanks. So significantly increases security because it's a multi-point kind of authentication thing. Okay. Right. sure. It, 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 it's okay. like when you join a bank. Like if I went to go to a bank and open an account, they would say, oh. Uh, bring your two forms of ID, a utility bill, all this other stuff, right? That's all corroborating evidence. It, we call this the corroboration yes. model right. of security. Yeah. And we've unlocked this and it operates in zero knowledge. And so the data stays where it is, which significantly reduces the risks to your data being stolen and it being further marketed and all that stuff. So it, it basically... You know, w- w- the other thing is, is we, we flipped the model. Like SSI wants to charge for issuance. We charge for authentication because that's who benefits from it. They get enhanced due diligence to auth- yeah. to get this deeper authentication. Um, and then that money flows back through the system, to the data sources, to us, and, you know, to enrolling institutions. So it's like, there's this virtuous
1: cycle um, to it all. Anyway, I, I have <laughs> talked way too long. Let's get into no, well, it. So you're, you're good at it. So, um, So I'm curious, so what you're describing is is less a new ecosystem than a a, a new way to make existing parts of existing ecosystems kind of hang together. Um, Yes. And uh, I mean, to to contrast it with SSI, which you were doing earlier before the the call, is that there are lots and lots and lots of solutions and standards development work and so forth and so far zero actual adoption where people recognize it in the field. What you're talking about is something where companies doing what they're already doing have a slightly new, different, a different way of doing it and working together. Yeah. So what I'm wondering about is, okay, f- first your, your company is cryptid, right? It, yeah. Uh, do you have a, you have a website for this? C-R-Y-P. Yeah, it's cryptid, C-R-Y-P-T-I-D dot tech, T-E-C-H. Dot tech, crypt, crypt, like cryptid.tech. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And your so you're so I'm, I have two questions. One is, who are your customers and how do they work with you? First, and the second thing is, just because I'm curious about it, I know there's a company that's interested in this. Is there a business in authentication, or is that your business, or is that does that become a separate business? So anyways, I want to go in the authentication business. What is that?
2: Well, there are already many authentication companies out there. Companies like Auk, Right, uh, yeah. Toma Bravo, like they just provide a simple API for doing API authentication, authentication for mm-hmm. your service or whatever. Okay. So that's an existing business.
1: Mm-hmm. The
2: the the most state of the art there though only relies entirely on the client themselves and what they can observe about them. And so there's not been any real meaningful reduction in fraud, I don't think. In fact, I think fraud's getting worse despite the deployment of AI because now we're seeing clients who are using AI to beat the AI mm-hmm. on the server side. And it's a, it's a whack-a-mole. It's a arms race. We fundamentally changed the battlefield here because now it's not, can I use AI or can I just defraud you? Can I convince you that I'm somebody else? But then I would also have to corrupt organizations that are in the business of knowing what is and isn't true about individuals. So I'd have to corrupt credit rating agencies, I'd have to corrupt KYC vendors, I'd have to corrupt the financial transaction uh, searching, you know, the financial transaction compliance vendors, vendors that the government themselves use. So I would have to go and corrupt a whole bunch of data in a lots of different places to create or to bypass this authentication as somebody else. It, it significantly changes the economics of committing fraud uh, at the authentication level. Um, And it basically makes it, I mean, I can't, I don't think I can legally say it's impossible. I'm sure there's a way to figure it out eventually, you know, who knows, people will figure stuff out, but I think this is like our first real rethink of authentication in 30 years. And I think this is the first time we'll actually see a significant reduction in, in fraud and authentication. And so what we are offering is automated policy and regulation compliance at authentication. So we have tools that, you know, like, let's say a a credit union, they, everything they do at a credit union is policy-driven. Everything at any business is policy-driven. They may not think of it that way, but banks and credit unions do. They actually have like written down, these are the rules, right? And we can encode those as essentially like a cryptography puzzle that can be solved using zero-knowledge proofs from data sources that they already trust. That's the thing. This is transitive trust. This is transmitting trust on the internet. A bank will this, trust this, this, a credit rating agency. This is the data
1: you talked about in the past earlier. Yes, this
2: is, this is a realization of the, an application of the authentic data economy. Because zero-knowledge proofs are not useful unless you can also provide proof that the underlying data is authentic. It exists in this place and in this state and that it hasn't been revoked. And it's the revocation piece that's critical. That nobody else has except us at this point, scalable revocation. So, so yeah.
0: I, I have a question that hmm. it, it kind of goes back to actually what Doc started to, to ask you too about where you fit <laughs> in, in the ecosystem. And because this, this is kind of the way I was thinking about it too. And um, do you see yourself creating a new way of doing things that replaces outdated ways, or do you see yourself fitting within an existing system and satisfying the needs of a population that cares more about privacy and security.
2: This is strapping a jet engine
1: to a Pinto. (laughs) This is really what it is. Um, Having owned a Pinto, uh, you know, (laughs) you can wreck a Pinto (laughs) without a jet engine.
0: But that sounds dangerous. That that, that (laughs) sounds like something that's going to, you know, be too early and and, and pass us by and go over most people's heads. How do you get adoption?
2: So we've, we've gone after some really cool low hanging fruit. What are product offering is is not a rip and replace it just sits right alongside whatever's already been deployed so okay it it can actually function like OAuth and you know and oidc like open id connect because what happens is someone will try to log in it'll say oh we do this new policy thing go over to this you know and it goes to cryptid then cryptid says okay well we need to enroll you If you haven't been identity proofed yet, but don't worry, this is reusable. And this is, you're setting up a relationship with a data fiduciary who doesn't make money selling your data at all. So the business, so part of what we've invented are like, are part of our innovations here are business innovations, not necessarily technical. Like we figured out how to make a data fiduciary profitable. That's important. Data fiduciary idea has been around a long time. Why isn't there a company that puts my data in a safe deposit box. And then I get to tell them whenever, you know, I need to establish a new relationship kind of thing.
0: Lack of economic incentive.
2: (laughs) Right. The only way previously to do this would be to charge subscriptions. And that just doesn't work. But if that data fiduciary is also managing your consent with these other organizations that have, you know, like say your credit history or have run you through financial transaction checks, you know, like do you comply with the financial transaction laws? And then that data, all of this, is generating zero-knowledge proofs to meet the policies and to provide enhanced due diligence and reduction in fraud for cryptocurrency exchanges, for financial transaction platforms, for banks, for credit unions, for auto sales, for Amazon, for Twitter, for any of those people that need to know you're human, that somebody knows who you are, um, that you qualify that you pass all their policies, that you meet their policies for the transaction and this whole enhanced due diligence which reduces fraud right so they pay for this and that money that the innovation here in the business side is that money flows back not only to the say the the credit rating agencies and the 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 financial regulation check vendors right the data sources but it also flows back to the data fiduciary who manages your consent and your relationships with all these and at any time as, a, as an individual, you could say, look, I don't want you, to, like, I want to break my relationship with this credit rating agency because I no longer need those zero knowledge proofs for anything I'm using of or here, you know, and relying parties. And so I can just swipe to delete and remove my consent. And everything we're doing is building cryptographic paper trails of collecting my consent, connecting my identity proof data with these data sources. Uh, allowing zero knowledge proofs from these data sources to be used to meet policies for these certain relying parties it's it's a new way of thinking about an old solution right <laughs> this is really what it is so if you meet a policy we can issue open id connect you know and oauth tokens out the back you know so and we can do saml and we can do all these other things we could even do kerberos tokens it doesn't matter um, we sit right beside them and do policy and regulation, compliance automation and enhanced due diligence in a user-centric consent-driven zero knowledge way. So now data stays put, but you didn't have to change anything. If you say your bank or your Twitter, or whatever, you didn't have to change anything, you just had to sign up with us and then we will help you, you know, with our tools encode your policies. And then you just present your policies and you re, and you basically bounce them to us just like open OAuth does and what fido does you just bounce them to us for the extended um authentication stuff now we are everything at this point but this is a four-party model there's data sources there are relying parties there's a data fiduciary and then there is an aggregator and we are both an aggregator and a data fiduciary at this point but i see those two functions separating and we built this to white labels. So we were looking, you know, we're trying to find data partners, like partners to do data fiduciary, partners to do the aggregator piece. Um, and we're looking for clients and, and we have some data source partners already. So let me tell you one really cool use case. And I know we were talking about politics earlier, but this is a politically neutral thing that I think everybody would find interesting. We now have the possibility of building essentially a private social media platform, like a private Twitter, or we could take Mastodon or something. It doesn't matter. And we could go, let's say here in the state of Utah, if we get buy-in from the, well, what we do is we say, look, you're, you get identity proofed. And we will verify that you are a citizen of the state of Utah, and we will verify your address, and we will know which voting precinct you're in. Now, that data will be used to create accounts in zero knowledge on a social media platform that doesn't know who you are, but they know for certain, or at least as certain as we can be, that you are a citizen of Utah, that you're a voter in District 5, okay? Now that can then be pre-populated, your account can now be pre-populated with connections to all of your elected officials at all levels from your you know, HOA all the way up to the governor, all the way up to the president. Right. And the thing here is, is that it's an extension of the ballot box because your, your participation on there is not tied to your real world identity, but you've been verified as an actual registered voter and a constituent. So now when you message your politicians, your elected officials, and they get a thousand messages from their actual constituents, that's a real signal. To them. And we've already talked to a number of politicians and parties, and they're absolutely excited about this because their reality is they get spammed a million emails a day and all kinds of bot traffic for their Twitter and their Facebook and all this stuff. And they get a lot of noise and very little signal. And it's coordinated and it's automated. They get all these pressure campaigns on them. And one of the things we could do is build a system where we could facilitate legitimate communication between verified voters and their elected officials. And I think it could radically change the nature of political communication in the United States.
0: That is very interesting. Whoa, possibly that's strong. possibly the the subject of a whole other episode maybe, <laughs> but
2: Yeah. Sorry. Imagine imagine an anonymous Twitter where you join by proving you're a registered voter in a certain state in a certain precinct <clears throat> and you're immediately automatically following your elected officials. And you can DM. Oh, I'm
0: not sure if that's if there's a market for that,
2: but <laughs> well, <laughs> given well, my you,
0: elected officials, I don't know.
2: Let me tell you, there absolutely is, there and I know is. I know there is because in the last election, I I've seen numbers. So I've looked at what's the data market look like for political communications. Did you know in the last election, oh my God, a verified right. phone, a verified phone number, a phone number that they can send a text message to that they know is one of their constituents cost them 100. Good grief.
1: There's a, uh, a Brit Blazer uh, who's not been on the show, but would be fun um, years ago uh, created uh, a system where, I mean, it's, it's very kind of web one O uh, but the idea in it, one of the ideas in it is if you want to participate in politics, all you have to do is pay a dollar. And that the only reason you do that <laughs> is you did it with your credit card. <coughs> And, you've, and as long mm-hmm. as you've spent with a credit card, you're already, that's your, that's your ticket in, as it were. And, and that might be the way to go. Something like that, that might be a way to that go. That actually is almost exactly what we've done. The reason you would use your
2: credit card is it verifies you're a human being and it can map you to an address and you're yeah. like, okay, you are a constituent. We can do that without that data being transmitted. And we can do it in a way that the platform would never know that information. So it is an extension of the ballot box. You would be free to speak your mind. Um mm-hmm. but at the same time, we're also doing that that verified encrypted piece. So if you get on there and you start threatening the president, we're gonna figure out we we, we have the means to know who you are uh, mm-hmm. if a judge orders, so orders it, right? But no no one party has the ability to unmask you. like so the, pieces can't the platform doesn't, yeah. it's a separation of concerns. The platform itself doesn't know who you are. The data fiduciary, which would be us, we know who you are, but we don't know necessarily who you, we know that you've consented to participating there, but we don't know it was you that made the the threat. And then, you know, it it would have to be put together by law enforcement and have a judge sign off on it. And then we can all cooperate
1: to, under the warrant to figure out who you are. But otherwise you are anonymous, right? So the fraud or (laughs) attack surfaces are too scattered for, uh, by purpose. They're They're separated out. It's a separation of powers, essentially.
2: Separation of concerns. There's not all the data is in one place. I don't know what you say on that platform as the data fiduciary. I just know you've consented to using your personal data to generate zero knowledge proofs to authenticate with that platform. That's all I would know.
1: So maybe you've already covered this and I just didn't catch it exactly. But without naming names, what kind of entities are your customers or your customers' customers if you're white labeling this? so um <clears throat> so we're often both white labels and and just like direct integration
2: um the the thing that we're working on right now that i am actually would like to i, I want to float this out on linkedin too Um uh, we are engaged directly with fincent and the sec at this point because this represents i think the first cryptography native and i mean that not cryptocurrencies not not the actual like Bitcoins or whatever, but this is like a crypto cryptographic protocol that can be tied to cryptocurrency transactions. Um, this is like the first cryptography native zero knowledge way to prove that you comply with financial transaction regulations and link it directly to a, fi- a, a, a uh, cryptocurrency exchange transaction. And without the exchange having to be their own KYC or collecting all that information or anything, they, they're just in the business of doing cryptocurrency, this whole other thing, like you prove that you meet their policies every time you go to transact. And so we we have this industry group that we've been slowly building with our, um, our attorneys. Um, and we are in direct communication with the fin- financial regulators. And so I see some of our first low-hanging fruit will be decentralized finance, you know, decentralized cryptocurrency exchanges, um, that they, they know regulation is coming and the conversation is already happening and nobody knows exactly what it's going to look like. And what we're trying to do is stand up in the middle of the crowd and just be like, Hey, timeout. Okay. We can do this in a way that does not hit, slow down innovation but does allow for financial regulation compliance. And um, so I, I'll be talking, I'm I'm actually leading a panel at uh, ETH Denver, uh, beginning of March. It's called, uh, it's in the privacy. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a whole series of panels under privacy. It's called Take a Stand. And my stand is that we do not have to give up the ideals of say cryptocurrency and web three and decentralization um, to comply with regulation there is a third way and that's what we have built and this is all going to be you know we're in the process of opening the protocols and the file formats but we want to get buy-in and show that it works in the industry and then we'll write rfcs and we we'll, we're already open sourcing a bunch of code and so this awesome. will be decentralized like email is decentralized right it's open protocols open formats And I think it's important to point out that even though email is still the most decentralized and open sort of like communication platform, uh, proprietary vendors for email services like Gmail and Yahoo Mail and Fastmail make mountains of money. Mm -hmm. So openness and decentralization are not uh, mutually exclusive from having a proprietary implementation and making a ton of money. So that's where we that's the sweet spot we're going for. It's like open formats open protocols, strong open source cryptography, zero knowledge based uh, transactions, and a separation of concerns. I would love to white label into an aggregator in a vertical. Like, hey, I wanna do licensing of avatars from Hollywood movies for use in video games. That would be one aggregator, right? The data fiduciaries are going to be working with multiple aggregators who work with all of their data sources and everybody on the internet who is a relying party who does authentication could rely on this and get the reduction of fraud, um, and keep help keep data in place and protect people's privacy and 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 make a huge
1: dent in identity theft. That that's our vision so, here. And so what what does yeah. it look like for the individual? Okay, do I have a oh, wallet? It's, it's yeah, no, okay,
2: there's well, no well, no wallets what? here. There's nothing. So. Yeah. The trick is you have to have a relationship with the data fiduciary. And now I've always thought that credit unions would be perfect for this because, you know, nobody goes into a credit union in person anymore or hardly ever, but they used to sell like safe deposit boxes and stuff. There could be a digital safe deposit box and they could be a data fiduciary in charge for that, or at least monetize it by, you know, as I said, um, earlier, uh, what it looks like from an end user at least right now, because we're proving out that the whole system works, is you download our app called One Last Time. And it's Mm -hmm. called that because it's a joke, right? You're supposed to get Mm -hmm. Identity Proof just one last time. It's sort of an aspirational name. It's not a joke. It's 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 the first of the last
1: times. Okay, yeah.
0: I hope so. Is this app actually a thing right
2: now that I can do? Yeah. No, it's it's currently on Test Pilot right now. So so Uh, this is part of the launch, right? So you would download this app, and it would run you through Identity Proofing as best as we can so taking pictures of your id uh doing selfies that kind of stuff and we bind it to your biometrics so we leverage the you know facial recognition or or fingerprints on your mobile device to bind all of this to you physically but again there's no database of that that's a client side only on your device kind of thing Um, and then when you go to use it to say like join a bank or you know any company that that has this you know, uses us for authentication, it would say, okay, this app website, whatever has this policy. You do not have data sources that meet this policy, but we have data sources available, would you like to enroll? And so let's say it's, I want to join Twitter and Twitter has policy of just prove you're human, right? They would present the policy. And it would say, look, you can't comply with this policy, but we do have a KYC vendor who will verify that you're human and provide a zero knowledge proof that you're human. So do you consent? You say yes, right? And, uh, behind the scenes, they're doing the check using the proof data that we have from, you know, the data fiduciary has, and then the z- zero knowledge proof gets sent over and boom, you're in. Okay. So from an end user, it's you download the app, you get identity proof once. Okay. Now I want to go join Twitter. Twitter presents their policy. It says you need to enroll i'm like you know yes i give consent it enrolls and i join so and to give consent that's a biometric and maybe some other factors but at least a biometric so a lot of cases enrollment is just do face id and then behind the scenes zero knowledge proofs travel across and you're logged in or you're you've joined you've created an account or you've logged in and so not only do we streamline sort of the onboarding process, we're also reducing authentication down to just collecting a biometric. And th- I think it, it's difficult for me to differentiate sometimes because everybody's like, well, isn't that what ID.me uh, did for IRS? And it's like, well, yeah, except they built a database and we have it. We have cryptographic protocols that don't ever require us collecting that data into a central database. It's all done on the hardware in your phone. So. Um. Anyway, from the end user, it looks like just, you know, get identity proofed and then you're giving your biometric to give consent. And if you no longer want to do that anymore, you just swipe to delete your consent and that breaks the connection. That it, it simplifies your interaction with all these platforms, but the platforms are getting zero knowledge proofs based off of verified information from organizations they trust.
0: Do we have time for another question? Just
2: yeah, sure. I, yeah, sure. How?
0: Yeah. how- how does the, the experience of that, or actually, no, under the under the hood, how does it differ from existing methods of verification? You, you talked about processing the, or storing the biometrics locally, and and, and um, anyway, I'm wondering how this differs from things that people are already used to using, like the way that Apple does things, or the major vendors do things. It'll like, feel- The major difference to an
2: So a lot of the stuff that you get, like that Apple does, right, um, is very similar. Uh, The cryptography is different, I think. But I think, so the biggest part here is that right now, the trend in authentication is that everybody is going to identity proof you. So, and identity proofing is the thing that makes people scared, of that's what id.me was doing to just pay your taxes it was okay you have to get on a video call you we have to see all your id we have to know everything about you and there is concern about that being the norm because if you can't be on any platform without being fully identified as who you are as a human then it reduces your ability to be honest and to speak your mind and, and the reason that is true is because like, say I go on a Twitter and they know I'm Dave Huseby and I say something that's unpopular. Well, it's not just that I'll lose my Twitter account, but I'll also lose access to, you know, I won't be able to process credit cards with PayPal. I won't be able to, you know, I'll lose my bank account if I'm at certain banks. You know, like we've already seen an example of once you're unmasked and you say something that's unpopular, you can be excised from the internet. And be prevented from doing business so the trend in authentication though unfortunately is that you know buy this.com is going to identity proof you the irs is going to identity proof you this other website's going to identity proof you this business everybody is going to identity proof you because fraud is costing everybody way too much money and the only known defense for this at this point is well we have to take pictures of your id we have to do a video call we have to do all this other stuff and that data now you're going to be identity proofed in a million different ways different places right you're going to do it to get gas you're going to do it to buy dog food you're going to do it for this and, th- and every one of these companies are building these giant databases of your verified personal information and that's making identity fraud even easier actually so th- they think that's their way of preventing it but they're building huge databases that are massive honeypots you know they're massive uh attack targets and it's going to make identity fraud even easier identity theft even easier, because it's verified information and it's in a million places and every company has their own level of security around that kind of data and a lot of them you know unfortunately don't do a very good job of it and that's why we see these giant data breaches so what we are trying to establish is yes, identity proofing is necessary. But if it's done correctly, you really only have to do it once, or at least one more time, or maybe, you know, ideally, just ideally, it would be one more time. And it's with an organization that is legally bound to be on your side, I could see this being a a B Corp, you know, those public benefit corporations. Mm -hmm. And our innovation here, at least with the, the authentication, the policy regulation and all that are the policy compliance stuff is that it generates, it's a business network. It's like almost like how credit cards work, right? The fees generated from the use of credit cards pays for the entire thing. It pays for all the companies involved and all the services involved. The way I look at this is the revenue generated from the reduction in fraud and the enhanced due diligence at authentication time can pay for an entire network that is user centric. It can pay for a data fiduciary so that a data fiduciary doesn't have to charge a, a, a subscription. So they can ingest people. They can date, they can identity-proof people and have them join for free, minimize that, um, that friction, and then they can represent them in the digital realm and still make money and still be a, a for-profit corporation. And so what's different here is that we acknowledge... The way the world's going, we know where things are going to, we're skating to where the puck's going to be. And we're trying to keep the puck from going in our net. You know, I guess this is a, I'm just torturing that metaphor, but, um, we know where it's going if we do nothing. And we're trying to provide an alternative to that. It, that is open and decentralized and user, user, sovereign and, and actual user centric, and it's, it has. The byproducts of being privacy first and digital identity first, right? So this would allow the creation of things like digital vaccine passports that aren't automatically a social credit system. So it's a bunch of new thinking. It's been under wraps for three, three and a half years now, R and D. And we finally found a, a market. We found found an application that we think is low hanging fruit. We can get into uh, fairly easily. And, um, that political communications app is just one of many low hanging fruit that we see. And I, I just, I'm calling, I'm literally calling everybody. Are you on the internet? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, Hey, uh, let me, let me do my sales pitch. (laughs) You know, (laughs) (laughs) if you're on the internet, you need our technology. And, um, yeah, I, I kind of see this as almost like a moral crusade in many ways. We solved a bunch of technical problems, a bunch of business problems. And I think this is the closest we're going to get to meeting the, the sort of the promises of self-sovereign identity. I think we meet all of the original promises. Like if you look up the very first, you know, speeches by uh, Timothy Ruff and Sam Smith and all them are talking about, you know, and, and Drummond Reed talking about what self-sovereign identity will do, right? What they have all built doesn't do hardly any of it but what we have built does and it is actually decentralized and it's highly profitable actually (laughs) there's a lot of opportunity here for people to make money and a lot of opportunity for regular businesses to reduce their fraud and to streamline their onboarding and their their customer relations so that's my sales pitch
0: This is why I love having you on because I always feel like the end of these episodes when you're here, we're like we're gonna start a revolution. Like there's <laughs> it's not something no, like, very exciting is happening. I,
1: <laughs> I have know. to correct that's you it on it that. It feels like I, I it, 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 it you has. You it's you been you a long time up coming. a lot of stuff that's already working. I think. Yeah. Kind of... yeah. Yeah. Hey, the, uh, you
0: know, it's a quiet revolution.
1: There's there's
2: actually <laughs>
0: that's the best kind,
2: right? I'm gonna I'm gonna risk clout here. Uh, I would argue that technology. There has never been a re- revolution in tech it's always been an evolution almost everything we use today is like this version plus one right and this version plus one um there have been new inventions for sure but i don't think anything has been like totally revolutionary i think everything has just sort of evolved uh,
1: i think that the, the, there are, there's a big one the biggest one to me is the pc oh Make sure the yeah. that was that was revolutionary i the The mobile phone very incremental. That kind of turned to what we into yeah. what we have now only in the last five years, maybe seven years, um, yeah. and a lot of that had to do with the build out of infrastructure where you could presume a, ambient connectivity pretty much anywhere you are. Um, yeah,
2: the web uh, was revolutionary because it made publishing cheap and easy, and I think Bitcoin's it's, revolutionary it's, it's because it received, makes it's receiving not necessarily
0: a good thing. I think Bitcoin's
2: yeah. revolutionary because it made receiving money cheap and easy Mm -hmm. um try receiving money (laughs) in dollars it's not easy Mm, setting up a business i know receiving money is very very difficult
0: well revolutionary or evolutionary i appreciate your enthusiasm (laughs) (laughs)
2: well i you know i'm going to be talking more about this at ETH denver and i'll be demoing there so if anybody wants to go that'd be great find me um i'll try to get to iw doc and
1: and i i have i have uh, two parties i want to introduce you to That'd be great.
0: When yeah. is IAW again? I might as well plug it again. <laughs> plug it's, it an, for the listeners. it's in April, yeah. When is it? It's in April, but do you know when exactly?
2: Mm, it's usually like April 20th, something like that. It's usually towards kidding. the end of April, if I remember correctly. I haven't been in a, mm-hmm. a couple of years. Yeah. But I think what we're going to do is uh, an enrollment it boot is. camp for anybody who wants to try out the authentication and you know, and any companies who want to get into the business of setting up a data fiduciary or setting up an aggregator. Um, we'll just help them with the few lines of code to get it going. Yeah.
1: The uh, IAW I- I- is April 18th to 20th. So yeah. boom. There you go. That's what it Called is. Called it. All right. I'll, I'll make sure we go. Okay. That'll be fun. Yeah, do it. <laughs> do it. All right. We'll I got to run. Oh, <laughs> oh, cool. yeah. Okay, and I do too. Yeah, I we do all too. do. Okay. Well, thank no, you
0: no. both for, for, for this. And thank you, Dave, for filling us in. And we will talk to you next time. And thanks,
2: thanks for giving for me listening. a... Thanks for giving me a platform to just ramble for
1: <laughs> an hour. No, that's good. That's good stuff.
2: Always good. And stuff. oh, and I'm actually on LinkedIn now for the first time in my entire life. I finally oh, capitulated. really I jo- I joined a social media network, so find me on LinkedIn and pair up with me and I'll yeah. I'll give demos. I'd happily give
1: demos and, and if you if you go there, maybe awesome. my wife will go too. She's just she's on nothing on purpose. Don't, don't I have hang security. up. Don't <laughs> Okay <laughs> that was the end